This is episode number 52 of the Paleo Women Podcast. Welcome to the Paleo Women Podcast. I'm your co-host, Noelle Tarr, a nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified personal trainer. And with me is my partner in crime, Stephanie Ruper, author of the best-selling book, Sexy by Nature. This show is the place to be if you're a fan of moderately amusing banter and uninhibited real talk relating to health, nutrition, fitness, body image, and just about everything in between. While hanging out with us, please remember the information on this podcast is intended to provide helpful and informative material and should not be used in place of medical advice or treatment. Now, let's have some fun. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Noelle. Guess what day it is? February 9th? <laughs> yes, which means yes. it's our first podcast podcast anniversary. We're one. Oh, that's cute too. Yeah, thank you. We are we are one years of age. Yeah, it's crazy. How, Seriously. How amazing is that that you have put up with me for a year now? It's been a lot longer than a year. <laughs> In this fashion. Um, yeah, actually, it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And I just love when these landmark things happen, you know, and you can go back and look and how different our lives and this podcast were, you know, 52 weeks ago is really stunning and kind of really awesome. It was so different. (laughs) Were you gonna say bad and then at the last second change the word to different? No, um, (laughs) no, but I do apologize for those first few episodes. But it got, us, it got us to where we are today, which is very important. That's true. Although I always cringe when a friend or something is like, oh, I found your podcast. And I'm like, please <laughs> tell me you're listening from now back and not from the beginning forward. Yeah. yeah. Start with the most recent. If you want to refer it to your friends, be like, yeah, just go ahead and start with the most recent. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Although I will say, I think that there were some like very fun things about like the beginning and beginning middle podcast that we've kind of we've kind of you know we've kind of let go of which is okay I know we got to move on I will say that (laughs) on the (laughs) no I was like please don't start talking about slugs having sex please don't I think that the cool thing is so in honor of our one year anniversary and some people may have seen this who are on Instagram I created an Instagram profile just for our Paleo Women podcast so we post stuff on there and quotes and summaries of what's coming up and give you a sneak peek of like what's coming up next or for this week so go follow us on Instagram at Paleo Women podcast and if you can comment under this week's episode some of your favorite memories from the past year i don't no pressure there because i that's really hard to kind of think about but go think go you know comment what you things that you love about the podcast or maybe one of our your favorite quotes from us that we said (laughs) (laughs) stephanie has met many because you've been listening and writing down everything we say because you remember it so well Oh, that's hysterical. I have so many favorite moments. I'll, I'll let y'all like do your thing, but mine are pretty much all animal related and tropical oh. island related. Oh my gosh. Also all the magnificent health advice, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite part. How smart sloths, we are. Sloths and sheep. Yeah. So you don't think we need an Instagram page? <laughs> 
No, I totally do. I think it's amazing. I'm so glad you did that. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's- yeah. It'll be good. It's a good it's a good way for everybody to be in one for us to be able to reach the community and the community to be able to interact together in one place. So yeah. Yeah, that's kind of important. I do want us to be able to all kind of interact. And so obviously, not obviously, but hopefully in the future, that's kind of what we're working towards is creating communities or or opportunities for community within the the Paleo Women podcast community. So you know what I'm actually certain is going to happen is that my like six fans that I've had over the last few years, my six fans, like, like, will just sort of be introduced to Noelle via the 52 weeks of this amazing podcast. And I'll be like, oh, that's right. Like, she's the smart one. And then I'm going to have, well, my mom will probably still be my fan. And then we're all just going to be like Noelle groupies. And it'll be amazing. Basically. We're all just going to like walk over to Island Noelle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I, I think I, I think we share though. I, I You know, we never really threw this like third option out there, which is, Maybe you just are stuck on an island with both of us. <laughs> Instead of having to choose, why do we make people choose? Because it's a popularity contest, I guess. Because everything is a popularity because contest. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying or wrong. So true. <laughs> that is so true. Yep. I am I am just happy to be your friend and to have been in your presence for an hour every week for the last year. Noelle. That's actually more than anyone can say, except for my mom, maybe. I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Your mom's awesome. Best. Yep. So I, so go follow us on Instagram. Uh, Happy birthday to us. Fantastic. We haven't made t-shirts yet. I'm so sorry. It would have been a great opportunity to do that with the first episode. I dropped the the ball on that. Yeah. But we'll we'll get there. We'll do something. We have, we have good ideas, right? We, I like the ideas. We have really good ideas. Yeah, we do. So, so anything new in your world coming up? Anything special? Anything that we should note or know about? Maybe in a couple of weeks, uh, Love is the New Skinny is still going to be out probably sometime in 2016. I've got another thing in the works. Um, I'm super – I'm just – super excited. Uh, I recently put up a post uh, about the science that we have seen on like what's considered unhealthy about being overweight and whether being like overweight, and I'm using air quotes, can actually help you uh, evade sickness and live longer in many cases. So I think that's a really important thing to bring to the discussion because we have all of this demonizing of body fatness and always telling people that we hate it because it's unhealthy, but that actually might not be true. So I'm excited. Did you already publish that post? Uh, On Thursday, January 28th. Okay. That's going to be, that's, that's a good one. We'll link to that in the show notes. I think that's, that's an interesting concept and it's worth probably discussing here on the podcast more so, which we have in su- to some extent, but I think that's that's cool. Yep. Um, are you excited about coming to see me? I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why you asked, right? I was supposed to say I'm coming to see you. That's what that was. You're like, Steph, why are you talking about your blog right now? <laughs> uh, no, 
that's not what I was thinking at all. I was that just, you know, that's I'm very excited. I'm that's so excited. That's what I'm excited about. So, yeah. Yeah. So we still have to plan all of our special things that we're going to do together, which is actually going to be nothing because you're going to be dancing the entire time. But we'll figure it out. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Um, nothing new over here. I am making some nice nice changes this week i finally hired some people to help us to help me uh to include (laughs) well somebody is helping us with the podcast so that's a big kind of thing for us i've been we, we it's been a lot of time that we've had to take to do it so we have somebody now to help us with the podcast and i actually have somebody now I have a couple people that I'm that I'm hiring and that are working for me, <laughs> which is a which is a new step and it's very exciting. Uh, it's also it's kind of crazy. It's just a crazy time to be you know in business. And I'm sure you probably went through that. And you probably went through that when I when I started helping you and working with you. And it's just like you feel like it, you're like teetering between being completely overwhelmed and balancing everything and then trying to figure out how to make time to like shift things over and teach people how to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course, you know, even the most fabulous people in the world, which the people who are on our teams are amazing. It still is like, Oh gosh, how do I, how do I do this? And we were just mentioning that giving up control <laughs> is not the easiest not the easiest, although so. I will say that bringing people on board who are who have who take initiative and who are brilliant and experts in their field is actually like just a huge relief, you know, like mm-hmm. starting to work with you was like, oh, OK, like, <laughs> yeah, few, you know, even so anyway, I'm super grateful. I just am surrounded in this life by people who inspire me. So, yeah, yep. So lots of. I've been having trouble again sleeping. I can sleep so well, but then it's like when I have stuff that's like, oh gosh, I have like eight things on my plate that I'm thinking about that I need to do when I get up, like I lose all balance and I just can't, I don't sleep well. So that's... I'm really, I'm really sorry. I'm really empathetic and sympathetic to what you're going through. I will say a few things. One, if you dance for a few hours before you go to sleep every night, it'll be easier to pass out. Uh, Two refer to item one. <laughs> um, three, I try, I try to simply like just, it's like, really hard. I try to organize my life such that I, I don't worry about yeah. stuff, but it's way easier said than done. And while well, we'll talk about that a lot more in future forthcoming projects. Absolutely. So are you ready to get into questions? More than I've ever been. If you're a fan of natural skincare products like we are, you'll be excited to know that Dragonfly Traditions has a brand new website. To celebrate the occasion, Phoebe is offering the Paleo Women Podcast community 20% off all of the products on her new website, including our favorite lip balm and the new Manduka eye cream. All of the products you'll find on the site are made from nourishing ingredients, including natural oils, butters, and beeswax. To get 20% off your order, head over to dragonflytraditions.com and use the code paleowomen, one word, lowercase, at checkout. Check the show notes for exact links and the discount code. Question number one is from the voice of the people. They have returned. Dear amazing heroines, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for everything that you do. 
You have provided the most transformative and transcendentally powerful rhetoric I have ever, I've yet encountered in my very long and very wise life. Oh, hail the all-powerful Amazons of the Paleo Women podcast. I am writing you today to suggest a dialogue on the topic of food and particularly sugar addiction. It was recently suggested to me that food addiction may not be a real thing. If it's not addiction, then what makes me feel like a wild animal when I'm in the front when I am in front of a tray of chocolates? I just can't stop myself or my cravings, and I am so tired of not knowing what's up. I am excited to hear your discourse on the subject, yours forever and truly, the voice of the people. Man, I love the voice of the people's questions, don't you, Noel? <laughs> I, I do. I really do. They're the best. So the voice of the people just gets us so well. So how do they know everything we're thinking about? So food and food addiction and sugar addiction. So last a couple weeks ago, la we had I I think it was last week or the, or the week before last. We had a couple questions that referenced, and we've had questions and over the course of the past year on this podcast that reference having a sugar addiction and struggling with sugar addiction. And it's a common topic now that seems to be coming up more and that I've personally been approached with, which is uh, the whole carb addiction thing. And I think why it's becoming something that people are very inquisitive about or or want to know more information is because uh, I wrote a post, and, and we talk about it a lot on the podcast, but I wrote a post in particular called, um, if you're struggling to stay on the wagon, then get off of it. And I'll link to that in the show notes. And it sparks a lot of questions. And people are like, oh, nope, you don't understand me. I can't not restrict things. when I, I have to restrict things because I am an addict. And I am an addicted to carbs. I'm addicted to sugar. So your, your philosophy doesn't work on me. And I'm not here... Our purpose is not to argue that by any means. It's it's or to argue what's going to work best for you or tell you what to do. But I think that it's an interesting concept to understand. And I know that a lot of my clients, and I know that when you were working with clients, Steph, you probably saw this a lot. Which was all of your clients were really more so dealing with a mindset issue. And understanding how to rebuild or restore or to reshape a relationship around food uh, and and your body. So so I think it's an interesting topic for discussion. Do you have anything, any thoughts before I kind of go into what I've been researching? <laughs> any responses to your super PC articulation of the less PC version I heard yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, what I mean by PC is um, Noelle and I were talking more in personal terms yesterday. Right. So I was telling you something and you're like, yeah, no, I don't think so. And I'm like, well, <laughs> actually, it is this way. Noelle's okay, like, this fine. Is science. <laughs> this is, so we'll talk about it on the podcast. Then when we start arguing, we're like, dang it, don't keep on. Stop arguing and just save it. <laughs> save it. Save the argument for the podcast. So I agree uh, with Noelle quite a bit that our psyches are really wrapped up in the way that we relate to and eat food. And this personally for me is so apparent when if I ever am on like having like a bad body day, I'm air quoting again, a bad body day or a bad food day. And 
I decide that I'm going to like go back to eating a little bit more like by the book, you know, or I'm going to just make sure that I'm not snacking or whatever. I get like a hair of that restrictive mentality. And all of a sudden I want to eat more than I did before. Right. Like I just, when we deprive ourselves, we want to eat more. And there are so many other things that factor into our relationships with food. I personally really take comfort. It's very relaxing for me to sit down at the end of a hard day and like eat. I watch an episode of, I I watch it. I've seen every TV show. I watch an episode of something and I have like a long, slow dinner and I, I have some sort of, you know, emotional relationship with that for sure. All of that being said, I'm in a pretty mentally healthy place with food and I can nibble on some sugary things and like put them away and be fine. But I also feel a bit like a wild animal in front of a tray of chocolates (laughs) (laughs) because I just remember so clearly over the holidays I, if I'm sitting with my family members around a table, right? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to like nibble on this thing and I nibble on it. And all of a sudden, like, I just like, I can't, my hand keeps going over there and it puts it in my mouth and I'm just talking and it's like, it's happening. And so that's, that feels to me like a very real biological thing. You know, it feels to me like I'm not like the, it's not like I have to repair my relationship with that food. It feels very much like that food is sort of leveraging some sort of control over me chemically. And I've been thinking a lot since our conversation yesterday. And what I am thinking about now is not necessarily sugar addiction so much as hyperpalatability and how tasty foods are and how... Also, like my personal relationship with the category of fullness. So a lot of people have to relearn coming off of, you know, restrictive diet mentalities, have to relearn what hungry feels like and what full feels like and stuff. And I have learned a little bit, but I haven't ever gotten to a place where I'm like, I'm full. I get to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure my body doesn't need more food, but I have to like now I have to stop. And that's been my way that it's been that way my whole life. I remember one time so clearly my little brother was like, man, I cannot eat another bite. (laughs) And I have never, not a single time in my entire life, felt like I could not eat another bite. I would happily just like keep eating. And I wonder if there's a, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, because I do have, you know, genetic testing that says I have a preference for sweet things. And I'm sure that some people you know, it were more genetically tripped or trippable by hyperpalatable foods, or perhaps it's an inflammation thing or an epigenetic thing or a gut flora thing. It could be so many different things that makes us more susceptible to hyperpalatability. Hmm. I don't know. So I think we're actually so much on the same page with this more than we actually think, which is probably hilarious. Uh, But I want to preface this before we (laughs) before we get any deeper, is we are not addiction specialists. Uh, not we're, we're not psychologists. We're not trained therapists. We, we, we don't have any... Uh, we're, we're not... We don't want to deal with 
we're, we're not here to treat your addiction, right? We're, we're not treating anything. We're not treating a disease. We're, we're just having an open discussion kind of about the idea of food addiction and why we use foods to soothe or to help with pain or to help us cope and, and why it is sometimes that so many people in this community and, and us currently and in our past have struggled with overeating. So I want to make sure that's clear. Uh, I don't think that what, you know, my stance on it and what I've been researching and coming to the conclusion of, I don't think it's actually an attack on that thinking at all. Um, What I'm kind of throwing out there is that food is not the cause of addictions. So sugar is not addicting. Carbs are not addicting. And I'll let me clear that up for a second. So over what I would say probably is the general way of dealing with addictions is one, there's kind of two, two areas of thinking or two ways of thinking about addictions. And one is that it's a choice and the remedy is to deter a person from it. And it's sort of like that punishing approach where you're, you're choosing this and you're doing something wrong and so you need to be punished for it. And then there's sort of the medical model, which is it's a brain disease. And it's a brain disease. It's not your fault. And this is caused by 50% genetic predisposition. And so your inclination to self-soothe or medicate with a drug of choice or to be addicted to something is, is just a brain issue. And while those two complexes seem contradictory, essentially what they were doing is taking society off of the hook and removing any association to our environment and to our experiences. So we don't have to look at what what happens to people, right? We don't have to look at what their experiences were, what what trauma, and when I say trauma, I'm not talking major trauma. I'm just talking areas that people are unfulfilled and they need air, ways to cope. Um, we don't we have to, we don't have to, to talk about that. You know, it allows us to divert our eyes away from hard social questions about society, about social policy, uh, and painful individual questions about our own lives and where we're at and how we deal with the things that may not be so easy in our lives to deal with. And so uh, what I have kind of co- seen is that there are, there are two major false assumptions that exist around addictions or addictive uh, behavior. And one is that genetic predisposition is to blame. So we have evidences of substances being used by natives prior to colonization. So both in Mexico and in in Northern America, what is now the United States, uh, like mushrooms and alcoholic spirits and tobacco. And they were used regularly without addiction. They were actually used uh, ceremonially. And so there was really no addiction prior to this this colonization. If all those people were genetically predisposed to become addicts, why didn't they is kind of the question. Um, and then the assumption that drugs are addictive. This is really thrown all around a lot in the health and fitness industry, which is sugar is addicting or carbs are addicting. And and we see that a lot. And that's that was kind of that's kind of been the new wave of thinking, I guess, for the past, let's say, five years, five to ten years. And 
That's actually a false assumption. And that is because if alcohol were addictive, and this is kind of what I was, we were, I was talking to you about yesterday, Steph, which is if alcohol were addictive in and of itself, everyone who drinks alcohol would become addicted to it. And that's the same with sugar or sex or gambling or shopping, right? So just because a person can become addicted to a certain behavior or to a substance, that doesn't make it addictive because the vast majority of people who engage with sugar or gambling or shopping never become addicted to it. So the root idea here is substances and behaviors do not create addicts. Your sugar addiction or your perceived carb addiction is not created by carbohydrate. So the kind of the big question is, what is it created by, right? And hopefully maybe we can... <laughs> Maybe we can find some some answers to that, but the no pressure here. But the correct terminology is really there are no addictive foods. There are foods that have the ability to feed addictive behaviors. There are, there are not um, they they are not the reason you seek out these foods. And so most of the time, if you're addicted to something, you have a dependency on it, right? So dependency relies on a substance. So in some cases. This is not true, for example, with a gambling addiction. If you have an addiction to gambling or shopping or doing whatever, wherever, you know, you have that, you get that high from a thing, from doing an action, um, you don't actually have a dependency on it because when it is removed from your life, you don't have physical withdrawal symptoms like fogginess or um, or tiredness or headaches or, or cravings or whatever, right? You don't have that manifestation. So just because... You're not dependent on something doesn't mean you can't have an addiction to it. But the flip side of that is you can actually have a dependency on something and not actually be addicted to it. For example, caffeine. So if I drank two cups of coffee a day and then I got pregnant or I decided I don't want to have this anymore or I decided I don't want to have caffeine in my system and I stopped and I had some withdrawal symptoms of it, of that, that cease, then I that means I had a dependency, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I, that I had an addiction to it. And so what we see around, thrown around a lot is like, oh, well, your cravings for carbs, you know, sugar is, you, you have these cravings for it. So that means that, that you're addicted and it, that's it, having a, a dependency and addiction to are two separate things. And that's, that's a really important distinction. So I think what this all kind of boils down to is, the real question is, why are some people driven to find relief in certain substances or behaviors? Why are they driven to addictive behaviors? So why do some people use a certain drug? Or why do some people feel like they need to continue to eat sugar in a way to meet a specific need? And why is it that once they've had that experience, why can't they give it up? Why can't they stop? Why do they want to keep going back to it? What is that fulfilling? What is that feeling that a person is getting that they want more of? And why is it that they want to keep feeling that way? And that essentially what I think that means is they're not getting it from other areas of life or there's something that they haven't dealt with. And so this is a way to cope, right? And and so you have to look at individuals' lives and experiences and, and their environment. And, and the brain, and we talk about this a lot, how the brain is inseparable from the body, right? We talk about that a lot on the podcast. But what I 
don't think we talk about a lot is how the person is inseparable from the environment. We have talked about this a lot. And you just mentioned it, Steph, with the epigenetics thing. Um, you know, more studies are coming out about epigenetics, which is we are not doomed to experience a disease because of our genetics. And there's some sort of environmental trigger that can turn on the expression of a certain gene, right? So a, a gene can be turned on uh, because of our environment. So I think when we blame the sugar or blame the thing, then we kind of remove the idea or we're not acknowledging that the biology of people is really shaped by our environment and our social relationships and how our needs were met growing up and how they're met now. And and for example, kids whose parents are stressed are more likely to have asthma. There's studies that have showed that. So a child's immune system is expressed in a certain way when they are exposed to a parent's emotional stress, whatever that stress may be, which I, I just is like mind blowing to me. So uh, addictions really are about self-medication. And, you know, people use drugs. People use things. Let's say that. Things like behaviors, like buying things, like eating sugar, like, um, you know, like drugs, like cigarettes. They use that to self-medicate. They use that to self-medicate ADHD and anxiety and social disorders and depression and, you know, fear and and PTSD and all that stuff. And really what it does is give people a peace of mind, right? It helps them relax, which I know sugar does. Um, it helps people connect to other people. It helps people feel less pain. So I think the real question is not why the addiction, but but why why the, the pain, right? So in order to do that, we kind of have to do like a happiness evaluation, <laughs> which is how how happy are you in your current job? How is your... How's your home life, your relationship with your spouse, your parents? <laughs> this is a big one. How big, how, you know, how are your finances, right? Do you feel taken care of? Or is there some lack there? Are you in debt? How is your health? How are your energy levels? How is your relationship with your body? This is something we deal with a lot. Do, do you feel loved and accepted by people in your life? Do you have a way to express yourself? And so if there's a deficit, which I find a lot of my clients do have a deficit, um, it's going to cause pain and emptiness and create a need for a coping mechanism. So that can come from past experiences. So we have people who have all this trauma um, or they've lost some sort of connectivity uh, when they grew up. And so, you know, they use a substance or something to kind of cope with that right in the now or it could also be that your need is not being met right now and so sugar sugar is definitely definitely um it it it, it creates a, a a reaction in the body very similar to a drug right and so it gives us a hit of dopamine we really like that we either feel comfortable that makes us feel uh, loved and accepted and or it helps us relax or it helps us not deal with the pain of whatever it is we don't want to deal with or the anxiety that we have and so when I think this is just me talking about my own life it's like when I kept wanting to engage with that food it was I wanted to keep feeling that feeling and so when I felt that feeling then I just wanted to keep engaging with that food or that thing whatever it was um, and and of course I could blame it on on the food. And a lot of the times that it, it, you know, that's kind of an easier thing to do is to say it's this, it's the food's problem because we don't have to dig deeper and figure out exactly what's going on. And so, you know, it was easy to say, okay, yeah, it's just the food's fault. And while I'm not denying, and I, I think that it, 
definitely has some sort of play in all of this because obviously these foods or substances really do create a, a response in our brain that helps us, that helps us cope, that helps us feel good. Um, it, we're, we feel that way because of a need for to, to cope. If you're interested in pursuing your passion and helping people find resolution with nutrition and lifestyle changes, the Nutritional Therapy Association couldn't be a better choice. Two years ago, I went through the NTA's nine-month program while still working a full-time job and now own my own business and work as a nutritional therapy practitioner, helping people through different products and services. If this sounds like something you've always wanted to do, now is the perfect time to check out the program as registration will open this June. And when you apply, you'll receive a $100 check on us to put towards any supplies you need when you write in Paleo Women in the referral section on your application. To find out more information about the NTA's programs and how you can start pursuing a job you love, head over to nutritionaltherapy.com and check the show notes for more information. So I have a few thoughts floating around in my head. Uh, First, I can't decide which to say first. First, well, I'll just, I'm going to start with the one I feel is most important. The idea that there is a need to cope. Okay. So when you say that somebody has a need to cope and I actually, I write, I'm writing my dissertation on the human need to cope. So I Mm. like, it's there. Okay. It's there. But, um, the, the idea that someone needs to cope has, and then they encounter a substance and it like accounts for that deficit implies that this human being has a deficit that needs to be accounted for. Right. Like, uh, I, I am myself and I have a glass of wine or whatever. And it like makes me capable of not having to deal with like how crappy life is, whatever. Right. That's what you were saying. But I find it entirely possible. In fact, I believe it is the case that you can be a perfectly happy, well-adjusted human being and consume one of these substances and have it elevate your dopamine levels above what is normal or healthy or happy, whatever it elevates your happy neurotransmitter levels in such a way that feels really good. I don't think you need to have something wrong with your life in order to get this chemical thing that feels really good and makes you want to keep doing it. And I mean, I think that from reading things, I think that from having so many alcoholics in my family and just seeing it all over the place, I, Also, I spent most of my life, the vast majority of my life, not drinking alcohol. Um, And then I dabbled for a little bit and then I stopped and I started drinking alcohol again a few months ago, about a year ago, maybe. And I noticed this just super strange feeling like the next day, the day after I had had a glass of wine that I really wanted another one. And I have smoked cigarettes from time to time. This isn't, don't like smoke hate on me. This isn't a regular habit. Although I don't have, I don't have a problem with people who smoke. I don't have a problem with people who don't or do whatever. But I have, and I don't have the same, I need to have one of these things to tobacco that I do to alcohol, or at least it's not as immediate. It could come a few weeks later, but it wouldn't be like the next day I feel like, damn, I could really use a glass of wine right now, but also feel like 
perfectly happy and well-adjusted. And I think that I'm a decently well-adjusted human being. I mean, I have my crap, that's for sure. But I don't know. I know that a lot of addictive behaviors and the like are around like a need. And when things go badly, you want your thing, right? Like when things go badly, yeah, like I would really like to eat. I had a mo- <laughs> I had a bad day a couple days ago. And I described what I did afterwards as fury eating because I was so angry. I just like sat and, you know, ate a lot of carrots. <laughs> and so I have that thing. But I don't think it's fair to say that addictions come from this need to cope. I think that there's a lot of overlap there. But I also don't. I also don't think that people are necessarily making up for something when they encounter a substance that trips them up or that gives them this neurochemical whatever. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of and I think that that's why so many people are very passionate about this subject is because they're like, no, you know, this this is a situation that is that is being created by the substance. But you know, the more research I do, the more it seems like substances or behaviors do not create addictions. They benefit a person who becomes addicted to it. And so whether that benefit is, and, and there's a lot of studies that actually look at, and I, you know, it's hard to, you know how studies are. It's it's hard to interpret a lot of the stuff, but there's there's a lot of studies that look at the likelihood of people uh, having an addiction. And if you had a parent who who was addicted, uh, your likelihood of having an addiction um, goes up tremendously, as does if your parent, if you had a disconnectivity from a parent, if you had a, a, a parent go to jail, if you had a divorce, if parents, if you dealt with sexual abuse, you know, that's, that's the more obvious stuff. But it can be, it can be just a disconnection, you know, in our lives as we were growing up. And, and so I, I don't necessarily, I think, I think that there's somewhere to, I think we can meet in the middle. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it's a balance of this thing feels really, really good. And this thing helps me, uh, kind of get a hit, right? And it helps me to be able to, um, feel amazing, whatever it is. Uh, but at the same time, there's a very high likelihood that there's something going on or a need that hasn't necessarily been met because there are there are a lot of people who can have alcohol and don't become addicted to it only you know about seven percent of people uh have have you know drink above what they would want to in terms of like having an addiction and impulse to drink so but then you drink know, alcohol we talk about substances being addictive and somebody's like, well, I'm not going to eat sugar because it's addictive. And I don't know if I want to begrudge them that like if you have a substance and it has a tendency to make people really, really want it and be dependent on it because it feels that good, right? Like let's, I don't want to like just take an extreme argument, but let's say like heroin, like, is it possible to take to do heroin once and never do it again? Yes. Is it really, really hard? Yeah. Right? Because it, it just feels that good. And it's really hard to resist these things again once your body knows what what it feels like, right? Or ecstasy, if you take it all the time and it keeps flooding your body with serotonin and then you bottom out on serotonin and then you kind of, you know, you want it again in order to 
have serotonin in your body again, right? So there are things that your body learns feels really, really good. And I think it's fair to call them addictive because these things might not be the actual cause of addiction. I think we're kind of splitting hairs here on that, but I'll let you have it, right? Like the cause of addiction is in like a human being because it's in the biology of a human being, of course. But like, I don't, I don't know if a worm or a snail could become addicted to certain substances that we are, right? Anyway, probably, I think probably. The, the substances have properties because they feel this good. They have properties. I would call those addictive properties. And therefore, I, you know, they might, the addictions might not necessarily happen, of course, when people partake in them. But I think that it's fair that if you may be susceptible to addictive behaviors or that you are wary of liking something too much, that you simply choose to never touch it. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that abstinence is not a good idea for sure. Like, I'm so saying a food is addictive means that like anybody who who engages with it is going to become addicted there's plenty of people who do cocaine and don't become addicted they can form a dependency on it which means they'll have withdrawals but there's plenty of people who do drugs who eat sugar who do all all of the stuff right and they don't become addicted and so when we say like oh it's the sugar's fault we disempower people to be able to figure out what the cause is of what why is the reason that they have this kind of uncontrollable reaction around sugar now i think that potentially the the way you know if if so let's let's say for example like how how somebody would cope or how somebody would deal with this if like I think if you choose not to be around sugar then like great I don't think the solution is to say like here's all the sugar like you know like put yourself surround yourself with all the sugar and that's why people are are really kind of like confused about it because when we talk about having a restrictive mentality around food and giving food morality and calling it good or bad and saying like sugar's really bad and then we put it on a pedestal like you said like if you get more restrictive with your food then you want it more and so not having that restrictive mentality around food definitely is is a good idea for some people and sometimes that uh, the solution is to just uh, let go of putting all these restrictions on the food and allow yourself to engage with any food and say like, okay, I can have these foods. Now now, now I have the freedom to choose the foods that work for my body. And that's a very real thing. But if you feel like you have a true sugar addiction that you cannot control, you are addicted to sugar, which is a real thing. People can become addicted to sugar, right? People can become addicted to alcohol. And if you're addicted to sugar, the answer is not to... Uh, surround yourself with a bunch of cupcakes, right? Like not to sit in a bed of ice cream. That's that's not a good solution. But I do think a, a solution uh, somehow will is is about finding digging a little bit deeper, finding out why that is so, and at the same time, you know, figuring out if there is a way for you to be able to be around carbohydrate. Um, and change your thinking. Maybe, you know, work on changing your thinking 
uh, about carbs in general. Um, and, and again, not demonizing them and not saying it's the carbs fault, but kind of like taking some of that power back and saying, I'm going to figure out how exactly, what exactly my behaviors are the result of, and, and kind of working on that. That doesn't mean that one day you're just going to be able to sit in a room of carbs and be absolutely fine. But I do think that it still allows people to be a little bit more empowered to dig deeper and not just say it's all, I can't have any carbs for the rest of my life, uh, which is a very real thing. A lot of people a lot of people say that. So for myself, now you know, self-reflection time. Um, for myself, it was it was a lot of let's say five years ago. You know, I always I just I always really want to know like more about why I do the things I do. But you know, when I was in college, I obviously restricted food a lot. I did a lot of over exercising, and I do believe that I became addicted to exercise because it literally the the definition of addiction. That's exactly what exercise was in my life. And it was a way to self-medicate my fears of not being accepted, my fears of of not being loved, of not having love, of uh, being rejected, like all that stuff, right? And and it was a – while I was working out, not only did it kind of channel my anxiety, but it also made me feel like I was doing something that would allow me to be in control of other people. And once I got injured – and I could no longer work out anymore, and I had starved myself enough that I had literally could not stop thinking about food, I I developed a different sort of relationship with food where I couldn't restrict it, and I was just overeating a ton. And, And then I got married, and then my husband moved away for an entire year, and that was probably the hardest year of my life. And I, I, like, looking back on how I was then, I remember even though I'm a very social person, becoming more isolated and feeling less fulfilled and feeling um, unloved and I just felt a lot of pain, right? Like associated with my husband being gone, with being newly married, with the job that I was in, which was creating a lot of stress. And so I could not understand why I was like, why I was just so like, I couldn't control myself around certain foods. And and I do remember, you know, if I think about it, I feel like it was relaxing to me. Like it channeled, again, it kind of like relaxed a lot of the anxieties that I had. And so it was more of like a soothing kind of thing. Um, and while it took me a while to stop doing that, I can be around all of those foods now you know, over the course of, let's say, three years, uh, working on what was the root of those issues, why was I feeling that way, relearning. And I think that this is why the stuff that we do is so powerful, is because we don't just talk about, hey, change the way you think about food. We talk about changing the way you think about health and fitness, the way you think about your body, the way you exist in society, the way you're accepted and loved by other people, the way other people perceive you. You know, we we talk about all of that stuff on this podcast. And we don't just say like, oh, stops restricting foods, right? We talk about everything. And and it really took a couple years of me relearning things about my body, about how I was accepted by other people, about, you know, relearning some of the things and, and the ways that I coped with, you know, maybe being lonely or, or kind of, I, I would say it was a complete misunderstanding. Um, you know, I had, I had learned certain things that were not true. And so once I was able to relearn a lot of that stuff, now I don't have those compulsions. And those compulsions transferred 
to other things. Um, and now, you know, I don't, I don't have compulsions for, for any of that kind of stuff. So I don't, I've worked through things and I don't, when I encounter a negative experience, don't have to go eat, for example, or don't have to go medicate in any of the numerous ways that I do. That sounded bad. I just mean, there were a lot of things that we can rely on. I don't have to go do that. But if somebody gives me a dessert and I eat it out of obligation, I will have sugar cravings for days. Like I can't, that's just a thing. It's, I feel like it's a thing when I encounter this substance. Like I don't actively seek it out like, oh, I need this thing. And maybe I had at some point, you know, food and whatnot. And maybe that's why it's still there. But I feel very much like this property of the food that it can interact with us this way is a real thing. And I want to, you said this a little while ago, I'll bring it up super briefly. You said that when we say something's addictive, that it makes everybody addicted to it. That, I don't know if that's the case in the scientific literature because I'm not read up on it. But I think in general parlance, people understand that when you say something is addictive, it doesn't mean that everybody will become addicted to it, right? People know that others have alcohol addictions, but not everybody has it. I think it's pretty, I think it's fair to accept the common parlance of something is addictive if people commonly become addicted to it because it has X, Y, and Z properties. But would, but would you agree that people don't speak the same way about sugar and carbs? Like they, when it's people compared to other addictions, I, yes, I I think in the health and fitness industry, there's more of the chatter about like carbs are addicting, meaning everybody is going to, you know, the the reason the society is the way it is is because of the carbs and the sugar. Perhaps um, I think perhaps I mean I in my own work I talk a lot about how your taste buds get hijacked. That's the word I always use by hyperpalatable foods. Mm -hmm. And I think sugar is one of them, but sugar combined with fat and salt is even better, <laughs> right? And yeah. perhaps perhaps where you hear a lot of this is like the low carb community and low carb paleo. And I think they just really like to demonize carbohydrates in as many ways as possible. Mm -hmm. And and this is this is included in that. You know, I don't know I don't know a lot about what's going on in, in those communities these days. But, I, you know, I remember and I used to run in it and I think you make a fair point that people use this uh, property of carbohydrates as maybe like a crutch or an excuse to, to be on a low carb thing or mm -hmm. to avoid carbs or whatever. I know that I certainly I used to I, I like pretended I didn't even know. But when I first found out about paleo, I was like, oh, I have a blood sugar problem. And then people would be like, here, Steph, have this sweet potato. And I'd be like, no, I have a blood sugar problem. I can't carbs. Like, oh, no. You know? <laughs> I can't carbs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. And I just yeah. I kind of made it up because I felt like it. And carbs, cutting carbs out of my diet helped me say stay thinner. Right. So I think that those things definitely exist. And there's a lot of fear about this stuff in the literature. But I also, you know, like I brought up yesterday, there's also studies that show like rats, like keep hitting the buzzer for pain in order to get more sugar, right? Uh, and they don't do that for alfalfa sprouts or whatever, you know, like they would rather die. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> again, rats. I know it's rats and no, not people. No. Yeah. No. I know. I said that yesterday. I'm like, well, also rats. Yeah. No. I agree. No. I. I think it is a very real thing. <laughs> very real thing that sugar is. You can have cravings for sugar. That is not at all the thing here. Like. You can have, that's why people, it, it's like, you know, it, it creates happiness for people. Sugar does. People are like, oh, I need a drink. You know, you hear that. And, and sugar is, in, in a sense, to me, just like alcohol, where it's, it is a drug. It, and it can create a response in the brain just like a drug can. And you can, you can form a dependency on it. But just because you have cravings to something doesn't mean that you're addicted to it, right? Just because I say, gosh, I'd really love a glass of wine doesn't mean that I'm addicted to to the alcohol. And so I think that, you know, there's just an, we need to kind of speak a little bit more clearly about it, especially when we're talking about carbohydrates, like a, a major macronutrient and, and sugar in general. I do not deny, though, that it is definitely something that can that can cause cravings. And when you engage with it, you will. That's a very real thing. You feel more cravings for it. Uh, I I do. You know, I know you do. I know that a lot of people in our community do. Um, interestingly enough, they've done a lot of follow-up studies on the rats too. And one of them was just to, to spin back to the whole environment thing. They put cocaine in a room with rats that were in a box and really sad and depressed and weren't allowed to do anything. And they went for hits of the cocaine, but when they were put out in the open and like a rat park or whatever, whatever, however they used to describe it (laughs) with other rats jumping up and down on trampolines they they didn't even they didn't even none of them went for the cocaine and i think that's an interesting thing to recognize just as a whole you know we have to if we're not being fulfilled or we're not receiving dopamine from other areas of life which dopamine you know we get dopamine flowing when we're seeking out uh, love and other partners and, you know, doing lots of different things when we're exploring, when we're doing all these things. So if we're not getting it from other areas of life, then we're definitely going to look for it in in ways, in other things and substances that can can do that for us, i.e. I, I sugar, i.e. cocaine, i.e. whatever. So when it comes to meal planning for the family, sometimes you just want an easy button. And lucky for us, Prep Dish is the button we've all been looking for. Prep Dish was created to save you time and the seasonal, real food-based menus take the guesswork out of mealtime. When you sign up for Prep Dish, you'll receive weekly meal plans sent to you via email complete with crave-worthy meals, a grocery store list, and prep-ahead instructions straight from Allison, the founder of Prep Dish, who is a personal chef and a registered dietitian. As a special offer for the Paleo Women podcast community, Allison is offering a free one-month subscription to Prep Dish meal planning, which is an incredible offer. To take advantage of this deal and sign up to receive your free month subscription, head over to prepdish.com slash paleowomenfree or check out the show notes for more information. Can I say something interesting about dopamine that's tangentially related but super interesting? Yes. Please. Please. Okay. So I went to a really fabulous talk by a scholar named Robin Dunbar last week who studies uh, social groups. And he's actually the man who came up with what's called Dunbar's number, which is pretty famous uh, and states that uh, 150 is the number of people we can have in our active social groups. And yeah, he's the man who did all the research that shows that like we really only 
have enough time and energy or whatever in our lives, people maintain no more than five really intimate contacts in their lives. And then like 15 and then 50 and then 150 and like 500 is, is like max for whatever, 1500 facial recognition, all this stuff. Anyway, very interesting. And But in doing these studies, what they found was uh, combining it with evolutionary psychology literature that apes prior to us spend a certain amount of time every day grooming each other. Like they sit and they groom each other. And this accounts for like 20% of the day, which is a pretty big chunk. But it's very important because our species of primates tend to survive because their groups are cohesive. They get along, right? So one of our survival things as human beings is being able to form bonds with other human beings. We take care of each other, basically. So we used to spend all of this time like grooming each other. You just like sort of sit and pet and like pick the bugs off of each other. And then human societies started to grow when we like found fire and stuff. Human societies start to grow and we all of a sudden need to find ways to become social with more people. And it can't be all of this necessarily intimate one-on-one contact all of the time. And, but the human being still needs the same amount of serotonin and dopamine and GABA and oxytocin, all these good neurotransmitters that they had previously. So all of the dopamine and stuff, more or less, most of it came from the pleasure of interacting one-on-one with one another, one another in a grooming setting. And then groups grow and there need to be new sources of dopamine. And the ones that are proposed to have evolved and that they studied thoroughly to have the same amount of dopamine impact are uh, laughter, uh, which is our kind of laughter is different from that of our ape ancestors. Um, It enables us to laugh longer, which gives us a greater dopamine hit. Uh, Laughter exercise also because it empties the lungs in the same way laughter does and singing and dancing and now when we do all of these things they feel inherently good on their own the laughter and the exercise and the singing and the dancing but when they study people who do this like they'll go to clubs or to choirs or whatever people who do this get uh, a much better benefit if they're doing it with each other and it's like it's really remarkable. If you look at people who dance, you see that they get a higher hit when they're like doing like exertion heavy dance. But that's like you can do exertion and dance alone or you can just dance with other people. And if you exert yourself and dance with other people like in synchrony, it's like amazing. And here's my plug for partner dancing. If you do dancing while you touch other people, like the neurochemical hits skyrocket and singing as well. All of which is to say that if we're going to be talking about evolution in this discussion and talking about other ways to like meet these needs, these four things, exercise, laughing, singing and dancing are like human biological evolved ways, like very specific ways to to get that dopamine thing. You know what I'm going to say, aren't you? No. Um, Would you? Would you come groom me then? <laughs> yeah. So come brush my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, it's so interesting. And so now what they're looking at studying is like social media. Like they're trying to figure out if you get a dopamine surge when you click a like button. That's mm-hmm. a real study that people are doing right now. Right. And like how have our social lives shifted now that we look at screens more than we look at faces. But they've also done studies where they like have partners and like the guy will lay in the fMRI and like the woman like gently strokes him. <laughs> non-sexually, gentle stroking. And it turns out that this kind of like light touch on the skin has a uniquely high and varied and pleasurable uh, neurotransmitter response compared to any other kind of touching or interaction, like gentle stroking on the skin, but nothing else. Isn't that crazy? That is really crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try that tonight. Yep. <laughs> Uh, gently someone, touch my arm please someone else has to do it yeah 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 <laughs> that would make sense that is super interesting i feel like maybe because the fact that we all kind of live in our houses and, and away from each other and we're not doing the you know we can even look to our ancestors who um prior to colonizing the united becoming the united states but prior to european colonization which was they did so much more things, activities in tribes. And, and just like you said, they danced and they they probably spent a lot of time together talking and interacting. And and we don't do that t- today, right? And so even though we used to receive neurochemical uh, hits, per se, uh, back then through certain ways, we still need those hits. And so I wonder if that's why we're so affected by things like alcohol and sugar and and even you know trying to get likes on our photos or whatever is because we're we're needing to meet a need that is not being met because we're kind of all in our own homes and 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 sometimes we don't choose to interact with each other right we kind of sit in and netflix and chill so (laughs) well netflix and well doing that should get you the neurotransmitters you need but yeah if you're chilling with people if you're yeah. Noelle, do you know what Netflix and chill means? I do know what Netflix and chill means. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, you can do it on your own, and uh, but you don't get quite the same neurochemical <laughs> hit. So, anyway. Yeah, so... so. There, there you have it. So I think... I think that's it. I think, <laughs> I think we had a really long first question. And I the think voice of it. the people, what can I, I say? I think that was a really valuable discussion. I... The, the reason, the the purpose of the discussion was not to come to a conclusion. I think that this is just discussing ideas, putting them out there again, changing our conversation with food, our relationship with food and health and fitness and all becoming better people and, and you know, engaging in life in the way we want to engage and and just becoming more awesome. Right. So so if you have any thoughts, you can absolutely comment on any of our posts, some of your thoughts, some of your experiences. If any light bulbs came on for you, definitely go to our Instagram page. I will have that linked in the show notes and you can just search Paleo Women Podcast on Instagram. We would love to connect with you there. For more from us, you can find Stephanie at paleo4women.com and Nina Well at coconutsandkettlebells.com. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>